Good morning. This is Rick Kite with the D.B. Reinhardt Institute for Ethics and Leadership. Our program is Ethics Today, and we've been interviewing people from different walks of life to try to give us a better perspective on what's going on in our society. As we, as we grow up, we learn kind of norms of ethical conduct and ways of ethical reasoning that help guide us through much of life. But when we live in such a complex world um, with ever-changing technology, a lot of that guidance doesn't operate that well anymore. And so um, we see this especially with what's going on with media, like who do we trust and who don't we trust? So our, our guest today is Frank Oswald, who uh, is a faculty member in Columbia University's Strategic Communications Program, and he teaches a course on communications, uh, communication ethics and persuasion. Uh, so Frank, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, it's my pleasure, Rick. I, I can't think of anything more important right now. Um, you, you have such an interesting background because you started in corporate communications, you were working on Wall Street, uh, and then you make this shift into academics where you're teaching and researching communication ethics and um, persuasion, right? Pers you know, how persuasion works. Yeah, I think that makes me quite an oddball, Rick. I I'm really the uh, accidental ethicist and uh, couldn't be happier about it. So I have, um, I actually, my undergraduate degree is from your states, from the University of Wisconsin but I wanted to follow in the footsteps of Woodward and Bernstein in the age of Watergate and become the next world famous um, investigative reporter. But I lacked one thing, which was really the talent to do it. So that kind of <laughs> pushed me over to the dark side and I was recruited um, by more of the marketing side of communications and where I've spent the last 40 years. So the last 40 years of my career have been in, um, in marketing and corporate communications, mostly in advertising and in PR and in, and in branding. And that included a stint, like you said, working for financial giants in 2007 and 2008 that really triggered the global financial crisis. And that really hit me hard. That uh, was a real uh, awakening where I had to think, wait a minute, was I complicit in this? Do I have some responsibility in this matter? And I, I took uh, time back then, and I'm, I'm in my late 40s at that time, to, to rethink my own career at the same time. Um, things like Twitter and Facebook were just starting to get some traction, and I thought, thought it would be a good time to go back to school and retool. I was lucky to find the Columbia Strategic Communication Program um, at the right time. And somewhere during the course of that, they had the crazy idea that I should teach this stuff too. So after I graduated, they invited me on to be part of their adjunct faculty, where I've been for the last 10 years. Um, five years ago, uh, one of our faculty members left for another university and opened up a slot for um, an ethics instructor. And I thought, you know, here's my opportunity. Here's my opportunity to take what my conscience felt uh, way back in 2007 and 2008, to look at the power that the new tools of persuasion have really brought to the ability to change people's behaviors and to bring them together in the study of communications ethics. And as you mentioned a minute ago, it's a great bookend right now. I teach classes in persuasion. I also teach classes in communications ethics. And uh, those two are at uh, constant struggle. 
Um, and that's what I'm doing today, Rick. That was kind of a lengthy introduction, but well, I, hope that, I hope that gives you some context, right? I am, I am definitely the accidental ethicist. So um, uh, that's the perspective that I can help bring to your series. Well, that's great. And I, what, one of the things I really like about what, what your background is, is you started out in, in communication, really studying journalism and then working Absolutely. in communications at, at a time when uh, the traditional media had a lot of power and it shaped opinions and attitudes and so forth. But at the same time, we didn't hear a lot about journalistic ethics um, in the, and the time when traditional media had a lot of power. Um, we hear a lot about it now, but we also have much more influence from social media, it seems to me, than traditional media in, in many respects. Well, I think that's true. And in fact, the latest uh, Pew research shows that um, 58% of people now get their news from social media. And that's up, uh, I think it's roughly 8% over last year. And at the same time, social media, the rise of social media over the last decade has had a tremendous impact in um, reducing the number of, of people who are reporting at traditional newspapers or news sources. And then the third factor you have, Richard, is that it's uh, the economic model means that you need to have clicks. And so even the face of journalism itself has changed because that which gets clicked on is gets rewarded. So those three factors have changed the face of many things, but the way that we get information and the kind of information that we get and the power of social media itself um, has, has changed the entire environment. Right, well, well if, if, the, if what really drives much reporting now uh, I, and, and even posting say on social media is the number of clicks that really gives an incentive to really short kind of superficial coverage of things because it, it is rare for somebody to, to read a long story and say in a newspaper or a journal anymore, or even to watch a long, say a full length documentary. No, and, and it's not in the financial interest of, of social media to have you do anything, um, but stay on their site and to keep scrolling as quickly as you can. So it's, it's um, not uncommon for people to scan headlines and to share things without even having read them, right? right. So we will we'll react emotionally. And I think that's, that's one of the most important things for everyone to understand about what social media has created is it's created, it's created an emotional um, medium for the delivery of, of rational news. And if you just think back to classic that's my that's my hometown alarm signal. Is that coming through on your? Yeah, I can hear it in the background there. <laughs> so you're you're are you in Manhattan right now? I'm not. I'm not. I'm about twelve miles up the river, twelve okay. miles north of Manhattan, but you know, twenty nine minutes into Midtown, and it's uh, it's it's a village where we still use a, we still have a volunteer fire and rescue department, and so that. That horn is probably going to sound one more time, totally ruining your no. your video series, no, 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 no. which I apologize for. But it'll give everyone a taste of uh, what it's like living on the Hudson River, which is right here over my shoulder. Um, this this idea of being an emotional environment is really important to social media because what it wants us to do is to stay engaged. And right now, based on research last year, um, the average user of social media, which is now 
depending on your estimate, about 60 to 65% of people are now online an average of, of nearly two and a half hours. And so what social media wants us to do, because they monetize our views and monetize our engagement, is to heighten our emotional state. That's why there are likes. That's why we love things. That's why you can say it's wow. That's why you can say I'm angry. And that emotional state, if you think back just to, to kind of classical, um, you know, going back to rhetoric and, and Aristotle, if you take things like logos and ethos and pathos, and if you think about them all on, on an equal uh, footing, okay, it makes sense. So logos being reason, ethos being the character of the speaker, and pathos being uh, the emotional state of the audience. People think of it as 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 emotion as in the emotional content of the message, but it's really the emotional state of the message of the of the audience. What happens if I can heighten the emotional state of the audience? In fact, by doing so, I can mute reason. And that is even more important today, Richard, when you think about the power of micro-targeting audiences, because if I can heighten, if I can bring people into an emotional environment, which is what social media has become, and then I can micro-target people who are most influenced. I can mute their reason. And that's an, that is one of the most important things that's going on right now, especially relative to things like uh, the COVID-19 pandemic. Yeah, so this idea of heightening emotional states. Um, Correct. In, in science. So the, one of the questions that people are asking is, why does false information spread so quickly? And, and what you're suggesting here, it's, it's, it's not really that, the problem isn't the gatekeepers. Like, see, that's one suggestion, is that in traditional media, we had these gatekeepers who would kind of figure out like what's true and what's false. And this is part of kind of the journalistic ethics and responsibilities and so forth. It's really that we, we diminish our own powers of discernment when we are in, engaging with certain kinds of media both quickly and in a heightened emotional state. And so that we're more likely to pass on um, false information uh, because we ourselves as consumers are not really paying attention to it in the proper way. Attention's the right word. Attention is exactly what this you know, what um, uh, social media is driven by. So they have kidnapped our attention. There's a limited amount of attention that we have. And when you think about it, 10 years ago, social media was a blip. I mean, Twitter didn't even exist until 2007, 2008. And it wasn't really until 2009, 2010 that both Facebook and Twitter became more of a force in society. So in one decade, we've gone from social media commanding none of our attention to almost two and a half hours. Now, a lot of that time that people spend on social media is also concentrated time. So that if I can actually keep you in an emotional state for a longer period of time, right. that's going to mute that reason more and more and more. So it's not a fault of, it's not a fault of people who, um, whether occasionally, we'll say, we'll, we'll take out malicious spread of, of false information. We'll just talk about people who accidentally or unwittingly spread misinformation. It's because we're human. 
And there was a, a study that backs up a lot of this uh, from uh, uh, three researchers at MIT, uh, published in Science in uh, 2018, so recent. And it showed that false information spreads to 1,500 people um, six times faster than truth. And when they dissected it, they looked at things like false information had more novelty. False information was, was um, propelled more by things like fear. False information was propelled by things like disgust. So there's this idea of something being surprising, something that might elicit more emotion like fear, but then at the same time, if it now helps reinforce my worldview or the worldview I've come to accept, then I'm gonna be more eager to share it. And that's when the networking effect of social media really kicks in. Because once I see enough shares, I begin to believe anything is true because in my environment, I see it replicated. So the, no, truth, no. That's in my, the truth that's in my feed or my environment is totally different than the truth of someone else's social feed or environment. So we've, it seems we've got three things working together there. First of all, we, you've got a heightened emotion state, which is sort of exactly. diminishing my own capacity at reasoning carefully. Absolutely. You've got social norming. So you've got, I've got all my friend network and all my friends are believing this. So I'm more inclined to believe it without bringing a critical eye to it. And then the other thing, we've got confirmation bias. So, so I know I'm, I'm more likely to believe the things that support my own worldview, right? And yeah, so you, you have selection bias and you also have confirmation bias. And that confirmation bias goes to another extent where I am now going to take the same information and I'm going to filter it to my truth. Um, an example this morning would be that um, uh, the state of Mississippi, after having um, a measured opening of the state, has had an uptick has had an uptick in both COVID uh, cases and also in COVID deaths. Okay, so that is a fact. That is a fact. But now my confirmation bias, if I am on uh, the side that says we need to keep social distancing and need to have more control, says, look, there's proof of what's happening here. As soon as you open things up too fast, more people are going to die, we're going to have more issues. But there's a confirmation bias on the other side, too, that says, hell, wait a minute, Mississippi is now doing more testing, and Mississippi is now uncovering more of these conditions. And frankly, if you also look at it, Mississippi's healthcare system is still got 90% capacity to be able to take on any of these kinds of cases. So we can even take things that are facts and then start to filter them through our confirmation biases to mean something that we want them to mean. And that is, that is a real problem. And if I continue to be in an environment where I only see the things that my friends who share similar points of view, it, it, it reassures me that I'm on the right track. Um, there's another aspect of it, which is, you know, if you think about, if you think about, you know, again, going back to classics and things like, um, Socratic dialogue. It's, social media is not a Socratic dialogue. It, it, it is a conflict place. It is not a place of comparing ideas and, and facts and opinions. It's become a place of taking sides. And so if something doesn't agree with, with, 
with what I have on my side, you're also going to get people put up blinders or defenses. That's a really complicated thing, but I, I don't think it's because people don't want to think. I, you know, what's, what's happening more is that we've just become susceptible to our own human quality. We, and, and over the last 15 or 20 years, as a result of our dependence on the internet and our need to get quick answers, we're also diminishing the need to think, um, not in a real sense, but in the sense of being able to solve problems quickly. So we don't want to think. You know, it's uh, right. you think about what uh, uh, Daniel Kahneman wrote about in in thinking uh, fast and slow, and it's like when we we were faced with a, a difficult decision, we'll often default to the easy one. But the second part of that is is without even knowing it. Right. without even knowing right. it. Right. So we're, it's a cycle that is reinforcing itself. And I'm sure you see that too in working with students, that students have just the same capacity as ever to think. And when you bring students into a classroom and invite thinking, I mean, the conversations, discussions are incredibly invigorating. But if I put them into another environment where thinking is not um, uh, what's valued. And in fact, I'm going to stimulate your emotional response with a dopamine hit every time someone hits a like or a love. Boy, uh, it, it, it kidnaps that, that, that ability. It, it, it mutes it. And we don't know it. And, and I think that's the, that's the real issue, Richard. So this is, um, I want to talk about, like, what do we do about it? You, you brought up how social media is not a Socratic dialogue. No. Socrates claimed that uh, if we're if we're going to live an ethical life, the most important thing is getting at the truth, and you do that by both questioning and and being questioned. You have to allow yourself to be questioned, and um, so th this is something we don't do very willingly on social media. Um, what do we do given this environment? Uh, because this is hugely important for our society, and I think if we're going to have a healthy democracy. Um, we as citizens, we have responsibilities for making informed decisions about who we elect, what policies we weigh in on and so forth, how we weigh in on them. And then, and um, so how do we, how do we act responsibly in this current environment? Yeah, I, I think that's, that's the critical question and, and certainly the one that everyone's trying to, to get their arms around. If I can wear my persuasion hat for a minute, there's, there's something called uh, the information deficit model, which, you know, uh, goes by the, the fallacious idea that if we can just get our information out there, we will persuade or convince people. But I think more than ever, people can take a step back from that now and, and understand that information deficit is not a problem. And in fact, the more information that people get that conflict with their own points of view, the stronger um, their reaction to the cognitive dissonance becomes. So if, if I am seeing information that doesn't uh, conform with my point of view, um, cognitive dissonance sets in. So I have to either change my ideas and behaviors, which is the toughest one. I can rationalize what I think. I can go out and accept uh, more information that agrees with my point of view, or I can ignore the other party. Those are the four different ways that we can deal with it. And right now, because, because we are in a conflict environment, people are shutting off the other point of view. 
or seeking additional information to reinforce their opinions. If you take something, uh, Rick, like the, uh, you know, the, the current controversial so-called documentary Plandemic, you know, so you know, the Plandemic goes up and we'll take again an idea of truth. Um, social media platforms see it, they believe that it contains misinformation and take it down. That's a truth. Now, so what YouTube has taken it down, and also it uh, isn't Facebook also deleting that when when somebody posts one of the archived yes. copies of the video. Yeah, it's a bit of a whack-a-mole though, because so many now copies of it exist that every time it goes down, someone else puts it up. But the idea that the the social media platforms have taken the original copies down and continue to pursue it is true. So if you are on the on the side of 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 saying that uh, the pandemic uh, video is, is propaganda, you're saying, well, that's proof because it's being taken down. But if you're on the other side who supports the views, you say this is a form of censorship. And it's actually proof, it's actually proof that it's true because the powers that be want this taken, want this taken down. Um, to, go to, to go to your question though, the only way that we're going to solve this is not by more information, but actually by trying to um, help people understand that we're in a constant state of being manipulated. Um, the, the example that I like to give is that um, in the late 1900s, like 19, 1998, 1999, um, a campaign was, was devised called The Truth. And the truth was going to be a new campaign to try to persuade um, young people that smoking was, was not a good idea, to not start smoking. All of the um, efforts to do that in the previous 20 or 30 years were total failures. And for the most part, they were all about educating why smoking is bad for you. Smoking is bad for you. But the people who were behind the truth were smarter than that, and they realized that in order to connect with young people, they were going to have to latch onto ideas that they found um, as, as objectionable as we find smoking itself. So what they latched onto was the idea that big tobacco was manipulating you. Big tobacco was getting you to buy their products and big tobacco was lying to you. And that created a different kind of dissonance instead of smoking is bad for you and you shouldn't do it when in fact I saw all my friends smoking, this was like a different idea. And as a result, smoking among young people went from, I think the, the figures are something like 23.8% in 1998. And the last study I saw in 2018 uh, was it was down below 7%. And so I think the same kind of thing has to happen. And I think the social media platforms instead of trying to be you know, gatekeepers because they can't move as fast as people posting information, need to do a much better job of being able to explain through the, through the views and not an antagonistic view um, that their platforms are also sources of, of, of manipulate, manipulating all of us. And it's only at that point when we get to that recognition that we can start to shift back from pure emotion back into reason. And we can also, if you again think of the, the triangle that, that Aristotle uh, devised, is the ethos or the character of the source also has to be considered. 
And right now that's also being weaponized because one of the ways to win an argument is to bring down the character of the other person, right? Yeah. You see that constantly. So we, we like to think, especially working in the classroom, that reason is, is the most important part of that triangle. But in fact, if you can heighten people's emotions and tear down the ethos of the other side's character, it creates an entirely different uh, environment for, for uh, information. One, in fact, that pushes reason off to the side. And that's the, most, that's the most dangerous part of all. So we have to find ways that are non-conflict to re-engage, re-engage reason. And I think one of the universal feelings people have, Rick, is that I don't want to be manipulated. I don't want to be controlled. Wait a minute, what, what are people doing to me? And so that's an effort that, that uh, you know, if, if the, the smoking campaign took 20 years, uh, this also could take 5, 10, 15 years to be able to do. But the bad actors on social media are far more clever than the good ones. And right now that balance is out of whack. That balance is way out of whack. Right. So, I mean, so, some of these uh, posts and videos and so forth, I, I watch them, the ones that, that I feel to be obviously false. I mean, they, um, you, you watch it, and if you study this at all, you see the manipulative techniques at work, right? Um, and so you see it, and you have an initial reaction. But um, I also understand that a lot of people aren't studying those techniques, right? And so no. the question is, is it, is it better to have a policy where, say, YouTube and Facebook and other social media outlets, they, they censor those um, because they are manipulative? right? And very effective. They spread very quickly. Hugely. Um, or is it better to let them get out and see the light of day? Because this is what John Stuart Mill said, right, in his essay on liberty, was like the best way to, to counter falsehood is let it see the light of day, because then you expose it. If you try to hide it, it gains a, another kind of life. Yeah, I, I think so. And, and what you're also seeing with something like Plandemic um, Rick, is that it, it, by censoring, you actually give strength to the other party's point of view. The censoring itself brings um, uh, credibility to the idea that powers that be are trying to shut us down or try to keep this message from getting out. Um, there was a statistic that I read over the weekend. Again, all of this is driven by a financial incentive. The more likes and followers and clicks that I can get, especially on YouTube, the more money I can generate. Uh, but one, uh, uh, one YouTuber that had something along the lines of 4,500 or 5,000 subscribers went to 245,000 subscribers in less than 30 days by getting behind Plandemic. And so this, this idea now that this has been censored actually creates even you know, a, a, a greater galvanizing um, effect for individuals who who, be, who believe in this message, and if if you think about Mill, I mean he was a, he was a reason. I mean he came from the age of reason, right. and so he he also was talking about this in terms of a level playing field and an exchange of ideas, and and Mill as the you know you know one of the the founders or, or fathers of, of utilitarianism 
we're always measuring things in very empirical terms. It was a very reasonable, logical system. There wasn't a way to, um, to quickly and pervasively weaponize emotion during that period of time as there is today. There's always been a way to engage emotion, but never with the speed or the intensity or the breadth that social media allows to be able to do it in hours, to be able to do it in days. And so when I think about Mill, I think that, I think that the foundation is absolutely right, that we shouldn't censor, that we should educate instead and try to be able to get across the idea of how people are being, can be manipulated. But I think his reasoning, you know, needs to be looked at a little differently in this in this century and in this time period, because it's so much easier to amplify, elevate, and um, and and really spread uh, things through emotion that could never have been done in the 1800s. Yeah, well, you know, the I guess the the biggest the argument then against Mill is that if we're if we're not operating rationally, if we're not bringing logos into our evaluation of these sorts of posts, um, then the only way to stop lies from spreading is to censor it, right? It, it may very well be. I mean, it's an important conversation. I mean, when you think about Mill too, or at least what I know of, of Mill, mm -hmm. you know, keep in mind I'm the accidental ethicist here. I'm not the, the educated one. Um, but but it, it seems, again, based in these foundations of reason. But there are different ways to use communication other than information. So when I think about Mill, it's like, okay, two pieces of information, let's have it out and let the best, it's, it's a follow-up to me of, of, of Socratic dialogue. It's, it's allow the best one to come to the light. Two different things though. What we think of the best now often involves what is the most popular. What is the most popular often wins the de debate because everything's become a conflict. Even on TV, things have to become conflicts or combats. Um, but secondarily, that there are more ways to communicate than through information. So I can denigrate. I can spread misinformation. I can, um, I can, attack, I can, I can attack your ethos. Um, I can increase your emotion. So therefore, you know, Mill isn't just talking about information to information. All of a sudden, all these other factors have weight. And in fact, in my opinion, they often have more weight in these debates. I, th I, think, that, um, uh, I think that's a big difference from his time. Well, I, th this is a great conversation, Frank. I just wanna, I wanna wrap it up by just talking a little bit about, I, I wanna just ask you a little bit about uh, teaching young people and your thought about the future. Because when I'm teaching ethics and you know, teaching critical thinking I'm, and um, I, how, to, how to make better decisions, but part of that is also having a, the self-knowledge of when am I being manipulated from the exactly. outside? Like what sources do I look for? What kind of characteristics do I look for in good reasoning as opposed to bad reasoning? I find that the young people I'm teaching are really interested in this um, and um, I, I'm heartened by that. It, it makes me optimistic about going forward that we have young people who are seem to be pretty much really aware of the ways in which they're being manipulated by these new technologies 
and wanting to have tools to kind of, I would say, pres preserve their own and preserve societal integrity. So I'm, for you, you're teaching in a much bigger city and, uh, and, uh, and you're teaching specifically communication ethics. So what is your impression of working with young people right now? We might be in uh, different cities and uh, different parts of the country, Rick, but our experiences are, are very much the same. So yeah, I, I, I think that your introduction is also part of the solution. And if you take it relative to something like the truth campaign and tobacco that I talked about, um, the, the efforts to be able to communicate and work with young people about these issues and challenges and potential threats to their individuality is how we eventually change things. So, you know, one of the interesting things when I started teaching communications ethics five years ago was the question was often, well, why do we even need that? What, why do you need that? What, you know, I, I get kind of puzzled looks that doesn't even make sense, but now we're aware of it. So this is our opportunity. This is our opportunity through education, you know, starting with younger people, who, who are also, you know, really averse to the fact that they're getting dealt, you know, not the very best hand in life right now. So they don't trust a lot of institutions and they don't trust the fact that they could be manipulated in the same way as tobacco did. And, and so to be able to open up their minds, to be able to separate emotion from reason, to help them understand that this is just part of being human. I think one of the most important parts of my class is the emphasis that this isn't anything that you're doing wrong or that you know, other people are doing wrong. It's, it's a result of being human. That we can, we can switch from our fast thinking mode to a slow thinking mode and to begin to, to employ more, more reason. Um, I, th I think we're gonna have a lot better impact over the years, Rick, doing that then we are going to be trying to change the minds of people who already have very rigid mindsets. Yeah, well, thank you, Frank. I, I appreciate uh, this discussion. Uh, it's really interesting, in some ways kind of discouraging, but I guess that's why we, uh, that's why we both get to teach ethics, is because there's a lot of work to do, so. I think that the encouraging thing, and you probably see the same thing, is that, that once students see that ethics isn't a book of rules, but it's actually a decision-making tool set that gives me power and allows me to have more voice and more control. It's an exciting thing. And I think that anyone who has really been turned on in my classroom by that, that concept also sees the power. And for them, it, it means you know, career power as well because these issues in communications relative to digital media and persuasion are only going to increase, especially, especially with the advent of artificial intelligence and the ability to um, program all of this bad acting. It doesn't even have to be uh, uh, done by the hands of humans. They realize that 10 years from now, 20 years from now, these skill sets are gonna put them ahead of other people. So it's, it's a turning point for us too, just in spreading the word of ethics. So I appreciate the opportunity to do that here. Well, thank you, Frank. And, and I'm thinking that, you know, once the, uh, uh, the election campaign here really ramps up and we go into late summer and, and fall, um, I might want to contact you again and have another discussion about just um, 
the ethics of campaigning and what we're seeing with communications in the campaigns because like this this responsibility of citizens to get correct information um, gets even harder in the midst of all the targeting of uh, these campaign ads, especially in social media. Rick, it would be my pleasure. And uh, thank you so much for, for inviting me to do this today. It, it, uh, it was great to meet you um, uh, a few years back. And uh, it's an even greater pleasure that we can continue this relationship. Well, it's mutual. Thanks so much, Frank. Thank, thank you, Rick. Appreciate it. Bye-bye.